Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast. I'm Joe Bullmore, the editor of Gentleman's Journal, and our guest on today's show is Charles Finch. Charles Finch has done it all. He's had one of the most interesting and varied lives and careers of anyone we've had on the podcast for a while. He is described on his Wikipedia page as a British businessman and film producer, but I think that barely scratches the surface because Charles has been a film director, he's been an actor, he's been a screenwriter. He has been a super agent over in LA with William Morris. He's now the CEO of the brand development and investment company Finch & Partners. He was the global chairman of Dean & DeLuca, that very lovely chain of delicatessens in New York. He set up Chuck's Restaurant, still, I think, the best branded restaurant chain, if you can call it a chain, in London, with its incredibly handsome interior, which was actually based on the interior of Charles's beloved yacht. He's the host of a very famous BAFTA party, which takes place on the night before the ceremony and is probably one of the most coveted invitations in town. And he has, and I think I can say this having been there to record this episode, perhaps one of the most interesting and best-looking offices in town. It's full of wonderful trinkets, all these beautiful photographs, stacks of books and coffee table books and letters from royalty on the wall and all these kind of souvenirs from a rather fascinating life, each of which has a great anecdote. So we started this conversation in a slightly ridiculous way by me asking Charles about these physical, very visual items around the office, which for an audio format, I think you'll agree, is a slightly bold way to kick things off. But I hope it's an interesting intro into his life and his career, and we had a very jolly conversation, so do enjoy. But before we begin, a quick word on our good friends at Luca Filoni and their famous Portofino linen shirts, which I've discovered through some pretty exhaustive research over the years, are perhaps the finest linen shirts going. Yes, they come in a wonderful range of colours and handsome stripes, and I'm particularly fond of their lovely shade of capri blue, which, my mother tells me, does rather bring out the colour of my eyes. But I think it's the cut and fit and build of these shirts that really makes the difference. They've got a proper spread collar, which holds its shape very, very nicely. They're made from 100% Italian linen, which is perfectly soft, of course, but which also has a lovely durability too, so it stays crisp and sharp much longer than most linen numbers. I've just singled out the Portofino shirt, of course, but Luca Filoni makes linen trousers, wonderful lightweight cotton shirts, and some superbly cut chinos too, all of which are true summer staples. So do check them out. Go visit Luca Filoni at one of their fine shops around town or indeed check out the full range at lucafiloni.com. How modern. Charles, thanks very much for joining us on the Gentleman's Journal podcast. Thank you. You're writing down... No one's ever written down a note during my hello to them. I'm noting my podcast interviewer's outfit. Okay, right. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm kidding. For listeners, he's here in a loincloth. <laughs> That's how we do it. We're actually in your rather beautiful kind of treasure trove of an office, which I've just been saying is, is very, very nice. It's full of all sorts of kind of memorabilia from around your life. If memorabilia? Not, oh, oh memorabilia is too all right. much. All right. But... I don't know. If I was quite clever, I would pick things out and then that would be the kind of substance of our podcast. I'd say, tell me about this All photo. All right, do that. Well, we start with one. The biggest thing I can see is a giant photo behind you of a what looks like a Rolls Royce or something being loaded onto an old military-style cargo truck. As I lean against this fabulous photograph, I compress the glass against the image. Okay. Thereby... Taking out the glass, sorry, taking out the air from the image. So it's a bit puffed up image as it happens. There must be a hole somewhere that's letting the air in. This is Nick Broomfield's father, who was a wonderful uh, photographer himself, an industrial photographer. That Nick then, Nick Broomfield is the documentarian, famous, famous documentarian, who I have collaborated with for nearly 30 years. And uh, this is his father, Morris Broomfield's car. And Morris used, was an amazing, a charming, wonderful man. And he used to travel all over the world with this car, getting onto an air transport. And people used to do that. They used to put their, whatever that is, Morris type of car, 
mm. onto an air transport with their bicycles and stuff. And I think they're off coming back from the Sudan or going to somewhere strange like that, Africa somewhere. And it's a great picture. And his father was this great photographer. And I tell you all to go out and buy the book yeah. um, because it's great. All right, Morris Broomfield. Okay, Morris Broomfield. Yeah, and that uh, and his son Nick Broomfield. You know who he is. Yeah, of course, of course. I hope. And is there any anything with a particular kind of personal attachment to your own family or your um, own past? There, that picture there was um, Whitney Strait at Brooklands, who was my godfather, uh, racing some car. Wow. Okay. And then over there you have Jimmy Goldsmith by Johnny Pagotzi's pool, and Jimmy was a great, great dear friend and mentor. And above you have my boat, Gale. And that photograph there, you see framed little photograph of a wilting flower is by the French photographer who's also close to me called Gilles Ben-Simon, okay. who was the creative director of Elle magazine and ran that for a while. Wow. It sort of, if I'm going to be quite clever here, it sort of paints a picture of your wonderfully eclectic like a uh, shrine. career in life. A shrine, but to a very much alive person. <laughs> I'd like to that. stress What's that. What's that picture on the table there? That one there, turn that one. This I'm... picture here is Whitney again. That's Whitney Strait. That's winning Brooklyn's uh, in his car. And then I have another, there's me and Kate Blanchett at Cannes. Okay. <laughs> there was a great picture that I had, which I don't know where, somebody's stolen it. No, it's gone. Um, all right. But it, but it sort of t- tells the story of your very many hats you've worn and plates you've spun and strings you've pulled over the years. I wonder if people meet you now, they walk up here and they don't know who you are. What do you tell them you do? What's, what do you say? I'm Charles Finch. I am. I love Labradors and I love fishing. So um, that's my Labrador, black Labrador then there, passed away, Wellington. That's my Labrador there, Hudson passed away. And I love children, particularly my own daughter, Una, um, and Sydney, uh, so family. So what would I say? It's confusing. Even people who've worked with me for years find it hard to put their finger on what I do. Mm. When I started being a polymath, I mean, Jay you know, Jay Joplin from White Cube, and I had a dinner together at Harry's Bar once many years ago when they just started Freeze. And he introduced me as a polymath, which I kind of like. So when I started being a polymath, in other words, you know, being in the movie business and also in publishing and also building brands and then representing people for a while and then, you know, all these different kind of things... It was really confusing in the old days. Now your generation, they everybody does that. They all want mm. to be doing 10 different things. And yeah. Tom Ford is a fashion designer and also a film director. It was unheard of when I started doing this. It was absolutely unheard of. Unless you could have a discipline people could identify you with in one sentence, you were considered a dilettante. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think it has been complicated in my life to be clear as to what I do. The way I look at it is that this place you're sitting in is rather like Andy Warhol's factory without quite the eccentricity okay. or his version is very eccentric, but not his kind of New York eccentricity. So it's a sort of collective, creative environment where movies can be made as well as the commercial part of the business, which is representing film companies and making programming or, or doing events and stuff like that. So I consider myself fundamentally a film producer, a publisher, and a fisherman. Yeah. Okay. And your grandfather was kind of, he spun a couple of plates as well. He was a mountaineer yeah. and a chemist. Yeah. So He was the original. So George, my great-great-grandfather, Charles, uh, you know, was in, uh, went to Australia and became head of the land distribution program, which wow. was set up by Victoria to give people, Queen Victoria, to give people land. And he was also very much an outdoors sort of type of guy. Anyway, so um, George Inglefinch was uh, a mountaineer and climbed Everest in 22, invented the downfill jacket and the portable oxygen cylinder, which he used on Everest for the first time. Wow. Which kind of, you know, now you could say was cheating because you have all these free climbers now. But in those days, I think it just 
sort of it sort of helped them summit ultimately helped Hillary and Tenzing summit Everest by just giving them a slight edge yeah. on nature and yeah. and that high altitude so that then the path was there and then other people could test it and go on beyond so he was a very interesting guy George and ultimately also invented a sort of blew up a zeppelin during the first world war by figuring out at the trenches how to sort of light a mini rocket. Wow. He was a really interesting guy. Also invented napalm. And there's lots of family stories and speculation as to whether my father was really his son or really wasn't his son. And we choose to believe that there's enough bastards in the family. So we believe that he probably was uh, his son. But there's books that come out all the time that say, no, no, and but it's actually bullshit. Right. And your father was Peter Finch? So my father was Peter Finch, um, who grew up in, was sent to Australia when he was 11. And that's why there's a big, not only from his grandfather, that's why we have this big Australian kind of, people often say, ah, he's Australian. Well, we weren't really Australian, but we have a great love of Australia. And my father grew up there, so I guess there wasn't such a thing as Australian blood at that point. So No, but he was a kind of a titan of, screen and stage 50s 60s 70s yeah actually before even you know he he was it really in the 30s before the war and then uh you know with with his pals errol flynn and that whole lot and uh holden and flynn and trevor howard and that kind of group of alec guinness and all those sort of that sort of era of british film which was certainly obviously paused during the war and then after the war he sort of became a matinee idol which is where his his sort of legend comes from, movies like Far From the Madding Crowd, The Pumpkin Eater, Sunday Bloody Sunday, Network, of course, where he won the Academy Award posthumously. He was nominated, he won five British Academy Awards as Best Actor, which has never been equaled. Nobody ever has won five. Wow. And uh, nominated several times. Yeah. And you grew up between Gordonston, Scotland, Jamaica, various other parts. So my father settled in Jamaica with my mother and they built a house and plantation called Bamboo. He then went on after they divorced to marry a Jamaican and had a plantation in Jamaica, um, plantation in the modern sense, before all of you get your knickers in a twist, um, where they uh, grew bananas and various different things called Clifton Hall. Yeah. So so it's a Caribbean kind of background. Okay. But not an ordinary upbringing at all, by any means. Probably not. Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> Although it's funny enough, I was having dinner with, last night with my friend Jonathan, and I said to him, you know, I was just complaining about sort of, you know, the rough and tumble of growing up by the seat of your pants, the sort of social alpinism required. Mm. And he said, yeah, you, you know, you did have social alpinism, but you were born in a pretty damn rarefied air. And I don't see it like that. I think it was it was difficult. Right. Difficult in that you were away at boarding school or that your parents were... My father was dis- sort of disappeared and not present. My mother was amazing but had a great friendship with rosé and champagne right. for many, many years that ultimately didn't do her any good. So yeah. it, was a, it was not a conventional upbringing. But you were head boy at Gordonston, is that right? I was head boy, yeah. Okay. So you don't get there without being quite both book smart and also, if there's such a thing as street smart at Gordonson, I don't know. But you've got to be liked and you've got to be smart. Well, I mean, or you've got to be a real sort of sucker-upper. <laughs> um, and uh, and uh, I, you know, was a very good rugby player, so I think that probably helped my chances. And I was good on the mountain, so with mountain rescue and... You know, I liked the outdoors. I loved Gordonson. I I had an amazing, amazing time there. Mm. I'm so surprised that uh, King Charles has been so down on Gordonston. I, I mean, I never heard him directly say he was down on Gordonston, but that has always been yeah. the legend. When, in fact, you know, I remember him coming up to Gordonston, walking, going to get him, landed his helicopter on the field, and I he was going to see his brother, and I was one of the... I was sent to kind of walk him there, and he was seemed pretty okay about being there it wasn't for everyone Mm. gordonson and i think he probably had a couple of bad chaps in his year maybe you know that was what made the misery but you had you had to like you had to like adventure and being outside and i think he does like being outside but maybe he 
Um, the Germanic side to him probably wasn't quite honed enough. Okay, right. <laughs> <laughs> you don't you don't strike me necessarily, and I, and I have, say this having known you for twenty minutes roughly, as having kind of head boy mm. energy. You seem to be like you're a bit of a you're mischievous. You're yeah. You'd well, like to break I, the rules. I, it was a. Gordonson was an amazing place because it was started by a German Jew called Kurt Hahn, who'd escaped the Nazis and from his school in Salem, where he was the headmaster. And the Gordon Cummings gave him Gordonston, and um, and you know he was literally picked up off a submarine and wow. with his and and saved. And he believed very firmly that we, in education, had to have a sort of Platonic, Stoic, but at the same time, an education built on trust. The children, given the opportunity to behave correctly, mm. given the right trust, they would probably behave correctly. And so he set then, he sort of pioneered this idea of outward bound that you would challenge yourself. So the punishments at Gordonson were a long walk. You know, they'd take you out and drop you 20 miles away or 10 miles away. At those, back. in my time, a long, time, a long way away, you know, sometimes really a long, long way away, and people would have to find themselves back either on a mountain or in the... On their own. On their own, on their own, with a, with a compass or with a map. Wow. Now that doesn't exist anymore, of course. <laughs> Did anyone um, ever not quite come back or I mean I think people got pretty shaken up sometimes yeah. and, but for, for the most part I don't think anybody ever died to my knowledge but um but I found real peace there because I was you know trusted and and they they like mavericks yeah it's like you know they like mavericks it's like it's it's like in like in the military it's the same thing is that you know you want Archie Sterling, as well as, mm. you know, somebody who's probably different. You don't really want a maverick captain of a destroyer or a submarine. You want them to be pretty fucking, you know, <laughs> straight up with what they're doing with a boat. But in other areas, in commando or other areas, it's kind of yeah. interesting. Yeah. Intelligence or whatever. And your father, as you said, is probably best known to people of my generation for, for network and specifically... The, the amazing kind of denouement speech he gives, which I'm yeah. not going to do an impression of yeah. now. And one line in particular gets repeated. And it seems every few years that has more kind of relevance. Even just this week, there was a obviously that Fox News kind of lawsuit about news as entertainment and, and things like that. Does that... Which is really unbelievable and not enough has been written about that or is being said about that, that Fox News would would literally accuse mm. a company of being traitors. Yeah. Really, that's ultimately what they said. And try and get away with it, I mean, is outrageous. And it's nearly a billion dollar, yeah. $784 million settlement. And actually, the press should be really writing about that more. Yeah. So it's it's really extraordinary. I'm surprised that more people are not, you know, really fed up with our politicians in a way that they should be. Yeah. But does that speech kind of follow you around, I suppose? Did it loom large over the your The speech is he says, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Yeah. And Paddy Chayefsky's script is extremely sophisticated and it really is about the power of the corporation Yeah, and and this dissemination of news, the over-popularization of, the new, of news so that it becomes entertainment. And, of course, that's exactly what it, what it, had, what it became, yeah. particularly in America. Mm. And some would argue, you know, that, that there is no going back from that. And do we trust news at all now? Do we? So, I don't know. No, definitely not. I mean, there are some newspapers that I trust more than others, and it's a difficult time, really. He died for quite a young age for you. I think you were 12. 13, yeah. 13. Mm -hmm. So that kind of being battered around during your adolescent years and ringing in everyone's ears and winning the posthumous Academy Award, did it, I don't know, did it change your relationship to him and how did it make you feel about him well, after he, he I My mother and father divorced when I was very young, so so I hadn't seen him for many years mm. before he died. Um, so he was not a very present, he wasn't a present father at all. He, In fact... He, they divorced when I was four. The last time I saw him was five, and wow, then he died okay. nine, eight years later. So, so he was not present, and um, 
the strange thing about that was for many, many years, now nobody knows who Peter Finch was, or not many people, unless they're film buffs or of that age. But yeah, it was it was frustrating to always grow up as Peter Finch's son. I mean, that you know, and, and, and yet never have known to have known yeah. him. At the same time, you know, I used it to the best of my ability, you know, whether it be trying to get into Hollywood or or trying to get a restaurant reservation. Or, I mean, I used it wherever the damn well I could. Um, and, you know, Gordonston, my mother was out of cash after my second year at Gordonston, so I was a scholar there. And uh, I finished this with, a, with a scholarship and a Moorhead scholarship afterwards. So it was kind of weird to have the name, family of deep roots, both on my mother's side as a Turnbull and a great family, and a legendary family, and industrialist and then on my father's side this famous actor inventor and military family and then really have nothing so 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 i was the sort of i had the names yeah. and the sort of memories of when we did have money and then by the time i was 13 there was nothing left so yeah. it, it was weird it was yeah. a weird th- legacy to walk around with everyone thought you kind of had a silver spoon in your mouth and actually there was there wasn't anything. there was no spoons yeah at all none no spoons no left spoons. i mean i remember collecting quarters with my mother you know, to try and have enough money to pay for food. Yeah. So. And what did you want to do when you when you left school? I was told one of your first jobs was a doorman at Tokyo Joe's, on, when not I, far from here, Piccadilly. When I left school, I went down to do a parachute landing and combat course somewhere in the south of England. I can't remember where exactly, but I remember doing that for it. Um, and so after I'd, after I'd done that, I thought, well, now I needed a respite. <laughs> You've done your bit. I, I, I learned some stuff that I wanted to forget pretty hastily. Okay. <laughs> um, and so then I came back down to London and my godfather, guardian, a wonderful man called Michael Michael Withers, who'd mm. made a fortune in silver and trading and stuff like that, and he was incredibly kind to me. So he, he, I could stay at his lovely house on Fillmore Gardens and, wow. you know, look at his very beautiful girlfriends lustfully. <laughs> And he opened a nightclub called Tokyo Joe's. Right. And so, of course, you know, I needed to make some cash. And I tried going to Strauss Turnbull, stockbroking company in the city. And as I'm almost innumerate, it was not successful. And it was just so boring for me. I liked the idea of taking people's money and gambling with it on sure. new companies. But I wasn't cut out for the financial markets and so I got a job as a nightclub. At first, I was the greeter. And then I realized pretty quickly that the cash was at the door. Okay. And this was heavily private, this place. It was super private. It's like an Annabelle's type of super mm. high-end luxury private. You had to be a member. But we pretty much found Michael and I at the door, another Michael and I at the door, pretty much found that, you know, if our palm was placed in the right way, anyone could get in. Wow, magic. Yeah. So we used to make a lot of money at the door, yeah, <laughs> a lot. Did you live with Robin Burley at that point? Is that yeah, a vicious Robin rumor? and I. No, that was years later. Okay. Um, of course, I knew Robin and Rupert and and everybody else. My mother had been a founder member. Annabelle was a good friend of hers, and all that sort of set. But um, Robin and I lived after my first film. I came back to London, and we lived together briefly. Okay. Yeah. So late eighties, early nineties. Ish, you headed to Hollywood as an Englishman trying to make it out in LA. No, so so what happened was that I was nightclub bouncing. Okay, and uh, and then I realized, Jesus Christ, you know what I really want to do is you know be an actor or a writer or somehow in the movies, which I kind of had had been sort of pushed away from, or you know, although because of my father. But so then I I went to New York to study okay. with Strasbourg. And I'd been to New York a bunch of times with my mom, and so I, I knew it a tiny bit. And there was a guy that I knew from nightclubbing who was a rich guy called Jamie. And um, I won't give you his surname just in case he's <laughs> listening, although he deserves a good thrashing, and if I ever see him, I'll give him a good thrashing. So he said to me, look, you can live in my mom's apartment on 525 Park Avenue, and they were a rich family and they were in the banking business and I'll give you the key, I'll give you the key. And so I made my plans around that idea mm. that I could live in that apartment, you know, and uh, 
then go and see Lee Strasberg, who I'd never met, but go and see him and try and, you know, because I like the idea of method being sort of different and getting out of England. Okay. Like, and it was very much you were going to be an actor at that yeah, point. I was going to be an I don't know, I wanted to get out and be an, in, in that world. Okay. And um, so I went, um, Freddie Laker, Air India, 90 quid to America, which at that time was really unheard of that you could fly anywhere for 90 quid. Mm. Now, of course, it's something normal. And arrived there in the middle of a terrible thunderstorm. I'll never forget, got into a taxi. I had $300 that I'd saved up. And I went to 425 Park Avenue. That's what it was, 425 Park Avenue. And that's actually Payne Weber. It's a bank. It's a well, investment house and used to be. And then I tried 242. And actually, he'd fucking never turned up with the keys, told me to go to the place and get the keys, and it didn't exist. So There he, was no apartment There was at no all? apartment, and there oh, was wow. nobody there, and... He really, really let me down. And Why did you bother telling that lie? I think did people want to get like a caught shot? up with a lie sometimes and they're young and they're drinking too much and they're ridiculous and he didn't face up to it and, and it was difficult. Have you ever seen this Jamie character since? Never. Okay. I went to the Plaza Hotel first and I didn't have a credit card and they looked at me like a sort of wet rat, wouldn't give me a room. And then I remembered that my mother had always talked about the Carlisle. Mm. And I turned up at the Carlisle, it was one o'clock in the morning, and they used to have in the Carlisle a little square sort of hole in the wall box. They didn't have the reception like they do now, but there was a little box in the wall. Mm. That was the reception. And um, and I was standing there behind a group of people who were getting, they'd been at the opera or something, and they were in their minks and they were going up to their rooms. And I said, look, do you have a room? And they said, he looked, man looked at me and said, no, sorry, no, it's, you know, I got to have a reservation and a credit card. And there was no way. And a man behind me said, what is your name? A little old man and behind me. And I said, my name is Charles Finch. And I think my grandfather used to stay here or and certainly my father and my mother and blah, blah, blah. And he said, I'm the owner of the hotel and, and, you know, we'll give you a room. Wow. And then I got a room there the tiny tiny room but i got a room and he said you stay here as long as as you can get your feet on and you can pay me back stay in touch with me have coffee with me in the morning and he put me in touch with people who had restaurants and stuff who might give me a job and and then a friend of michael withers who was right who was actually at Payne weber um called francis said look you know call up my mate called tommy holbrook and he'll give you a job because he likes brits and he'll give you a job and uh, so I went to see Tom Holbrook, who had a restaurant at the time called Holbrook's, which was a big deal on 75th and 3rd, and, and he gave me a job. And then I went down and saw Lee Strasberg and waited outside for an hour and a half until he'd see me, and and Lee accepted me, and I got a job at Holbrook's. And pretty much from the, sink, from the moment I arrived, I started writing. Right. Pretty much from the moment I arrived. Yeah. And writing was a sort of passion for me, and, and so... Uh, so that's that's what happened, and I then again also realized pretty much at Holbrooks that actually there was an amazing barman, uh, Billy, and he was an enormous guy, and and I was a sort of again the greeter because I sort of had a blazer and a, I you know, used to wear a bow tie in those days like Churchill, and and he said to me, "Listen, pal, you look mighty <laughs> undernourished," <laughs> and one of the things that I of course hadn't got enough money to do was really I had yeah. this room and taxi and stuff I like didn't have any money and so I hadn't been eating other than water and you know taking the rolls and from other people's trays outside their room at the Carlisle and stuff like that and so um he said listen you moron you don't want to be the greeter nobody's going to give you any fucking money as the greeter come and get behind the bar right then he sort of took me under his wing and I'd make like three four hundred dollars a night tips yeah, tips. Amazing. And also get laid and stuff like that. And great women everywhere. and I mean, everywhere. And they kind of liked a kid. You know, I was 18, 19 years old. Yeah. 19 years old. So they, they liked a kid. You know, they were like, you know, we'll, we'll help you out and feed you. And <laughs> Okay. I mean, America, if you, if you fall on the right people in America, this is incredibly welcoming. Yeah. You know. You jumped to L.A. after that. So then I, uh, this is a long fucking career here, but after that I, um, so I was working at, I was working with Lee and studying with Lee, I should say, and um, 
of course, it was fascinating. And I don't know if I believe so much in method anymore, but or I believe there is a method in performance that people can tap into, and there is emotional memory that they can use in performance. Actors can tap into that. But the whole idea of method as a way of, I'm not so sure that it's good for everyone. It didn't work for me anyway. Lee died. I was in his Tuesday class. He died, went to the funeral, carried his coffin, did all that. And I wrote a movie, I wrote a script called Wake Me When It Thunders, and um, somebody optioned it. And then I sort of thought, hmm, kind of like time. this. Yeah. <laughs> I could write, get paid for it. And so I really started as a writer then, and then I went to Los Angeles to try and... Um, Werner Herzog had a, had a script that he wanted to do, which was about Robert Johnson. The um, I, was, I was having a love affair with an Italian called Dialta, and she was also having an affair with Werner at the same time. And so <laughs> I think she gave me the script, or the cameraman gave me the So I, so I kind of took that under my arm. Okay. To try and get to try and give it to a few people, and uh, and then I had written this script, so they gave me enough money, like like enough five hundred dollars. I'm talking, and I went to to Los Angeles and to the Chateau Marmont, and and got a job that night, pretty much. You made your first film at twenty one. Is that right? I was twenty one. Yeah, twenty one, twenty two. Yeah. And did you speak to Stanley Kubrick about? So no, many many years later. Um, <laughs> First of all, I met in the lobby of the Chateau Marmont that evening a guy um, called Noel Marshall who had made The Exorcist and was married to Tippi Hedren. Yeah. So he hired me. I have funny stories about him, which I've talked about before. And he, I had a Volkswagen Beetle called Myrtle, which is a white Beetle, white Beetle convertible, and somebody stole my uh, roof and I went up to see Noel and Tippy and, and their ranch. And I got to the gate and I rang the bell and Tippy said, hey, listen, welcome, but don't get out of the car. We'll come and get you. And so I drove up to the house and got to the house and I thought, mm, we must have big dogs and shit. And uh, of course, literally seconds later, the biggest lion you've ever seen in your life wow. strolled towards me with his <laughs> wife, who was another big lioness and their kids. Oh and God. I sat in this car, but I didn't have a roof. You know, I didn't have a roof. So I started honking the horn until they came and got me. So anyway, <laughs> so um, I worked for Noel trying to put movies together, write movies. Then I got a few development deals mm -hmm. and I hooked up with Billy Gerber, who went on to be president of Warner Brothers. David Geffen gave us an office. I was, I was, you know, doing it, scratching yeah, my way up it. the yeah. tent, tent pole. And then I got a job for Peter Goober and John Peters. And I worked on Batman. That was Tim Burton's first Batman. I remember seeing his Frankenweenie um, short film and Vision Quest with Matthew Modine, who's one of my great friends now, and a whole bunch of movies. And then I sort of thought, this is too far away from the coalface. You know, it's too far. And I wrote a script called Priceless Beauty and went on to write, direct, and produce it. It wasn't very good, but it was an amazing experience. Yeah. And that's how I started, basically. And then from then on... I wrote, directed two other movies. I wrote about another seven or eight movies, none particularly good. I did Bad Girls with Fox, which I wrote with my mum, a big female Western, a whole bunch of movies like that. Yeah. And then um, the last movie I made as a director, I was so brokenhearted you know, with the reception of the movie, which was at the Toronto Film Festival, that I said, fuck it. Yeah. I'm never doing this again, and I... Got a job at the with my agents, who happened to be William Morris. And this is that's never ever is the film you're talking never about. Never ever, yeah. So I tried to find trace of it on the internet. There's there's a trailer. Well, uh, good enough. The trailer is probably the best part of the movie. Okay, I you starred in it, wrote it, directed. Yeah. It was ambitious at all, but you were still very young. I couldn't find anybody to be in the movie, and I just got so fed up that I put myself in it. Okay, which I don't know if it was such a bad idea. Now, maybe now I could do it because I know more of what I'm doing. But in those days, I didn't have enough experience. Right. It was too too difficult to do. And to juggle all those things at once, I suppose. Yeah, I fell in love with Sandrine Bonner. You know, she left me after the premiere when the reviews were bad. She'd deny that, but it's a fact. And then I became an agent, yeah. Right. I've heard you say before that was quite personally crushing for you to get those bad reviews at such a high-profile thing. I mean, I loved writing movies, making movies. Directing movies is the funnest thing I've ever done in my life. Yeah, I mean, editing a magazine like Rabbit's Foot is fabulously interesting, like directing in a way. 
but really directing a picture that you've written is mm. fantastic. I mean, not only do you get to work with this collection of people, yeah, but also, you know, you paint a, a story with a camera. I mean, fuck, there is no better thing than that. Right. I really loved it. So to give it up because some motherfucker at Variety, you know, writes your performances so flat you can land a jumbo jet your head, you know, something like that. It was, right. it was devastating. I didn't get right. out of bed for two weeks. Really? Yeah. But, I mean, bad reviews, bad reviews. Was it financially, <clears throat> did it work financially? Was it a failure in every front or was it just I never personally? had any money. Okay. I never, ever had any money. I always lived like a king, but I never had any money. I never had any money. So, um, so I was used to that. But what was different here, I think, was that it it was such a pure effort. If you do find the film, mm. I think they changed it, the title to Circle of Passion. Okay. You don't have to watch the whole thing, but you can see it's beautifully made. And it was a sort of, it was a, it was a real love story and yeah. an attempt to do something different. And it's just not a good film because I'm bad in it. If it had been somebody else, it would have been better. But then you get a review like that and you don't have the guidance of other people. Yeah. Because you're in it as well, people can jump on your head and say, hey, motherfucker, you shouldn't have been in that movie. And Was it a kind of nepotism charge? I think you think you can do it because your dad was such a great actor. I don't, Did that hurt? I mean, I didn't hear that particular one, but I think it was just, I think, you know, Michael Cimino said something to me many years ago. He said, you know, Charles, which is also in French Premier magazine, mm. You know, you're so young that you don't know the daggers that are in your back. And I mean, I don't live by that, but it was a, you know, it was a devastating fall to cross so, such a big leap from being a film director, a writer, across the river into being on the other side of everything, representing artists was really a, truly a big leap that took many years to come back from. Right. Many years. You worked for William Morris, obviously the biggest, kind of most famous Hollywood agency. And the impression of a William Morris agent or any agent in Hollywood we kind of have is, I don't know, someone like Ari Golden. Well, Ari Emanuel, who's a friend of mine from whom that's based. And I think I probably have a bit of the Brit agent who's the other guy in it based on me. First of all, I had amazing people I worked with who were, I'm talking about agents who taught me a hell of a lot who really taught me a lot yeah. about business and about, you know, so it was pretty fun, actually. And then the clients were, you know, a, a blast for the most part until, you know, Malkovich definitely was really amazing person to work with and John Malkovich and, and of course, Willem Dafoe was amazing person to work with and Kate Blanchett and other people like that were interesting the boys were more more fun, yeah, really. But did you live that big kind of Chateau Marmont Hollywood life? Power, big deals, big cars, a hundred percent power um, and money, a hundred percent. In fact, you know, pretty soon in, I mean, I'd signed ninety clients pretty soon in, and and realized I didn't really like it pretty quickly. And so the money they, was good, but the actual yeah, the money was the was, was very good, but I didn't really like it. And I realized pretty quickly I didn't want to represent individuals. Yeah. And then I, they sent me to Europe, and I figured out I wanted to represent brands and companies. Okay. And that's which is what I ultimately went on to do. And I tried to buy William Morris and do exactly what Ari has done, which is we wanted to separate out the European operation and turn it into a film studio and television studio. My young colleague, Ben Silverman, had already found Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and Survivor. Mm-hmm. And he'd already sold those, those formats into the U.S. through the L.A. office. And we thought, why the fuck are we selling these formats when we could own them? Yeah. So already, you know, I was kind of rubbing the establishment there the wrong way and wanting to be a maverick. And so I left pretty quickly and started my own company. How has Hollywood changed since you left, do you think? Is it a very it's, different place now? Well, I, I think obviously leaving streaming and how people see entertainment aside for a second... Well, lots of things have changed. You know, I mean, the actual ideas that we had that you could be an agency, own sports management, events and programming and create your own programming, that's all happened. Okay, so that didn't exist. So I think I was very far ahead in that. The endorsement business was a tiny business and we made it into a huge business. So I think I also 
was the really early innovator of brand representation, red carpet, and mm -hmm. one of the early innovators of that. And that's now standard. So yeah. those things in those days were right down, you know, you know, nobody talked to Clark Gable, you know, about an endorsement. And I think it's a two-edged sword that. I mean, I think endorsement, if it's done to further your creative choices and give you freedom, I think is great. But if you're at the top of the game and making so much money anyway, I don't see why you need to do that. But anyway, that's my personal view. So I think if you're on a, on a, on a journey where you're choosing to be really selective about your work and, and it's difficult, then I can see why you should do that. Has it changed? In every other way it's changed, I'd say. The good change we know about, which is equal opportunity, both in terms of race and also in terms of gender, that's fantastic. And we're on the, I think we're on the way now to really m making change. It's not completely happened. It went very far out in one direction. Now it has to come back to the center a bit. So it becomes more of a meritocracy mm -hmm. rather than more of a sort of political statement about people's thing. But if you look in my the issue of my magazine, this fourth issue, we have these fantastically interesting filmmakers from all sorts of different worlds and ideas and Hollywood opening itself up to these incredibly interesting international filmmakers, yeah. you know, Czech filmmakers, Hungarian filmmakers, British filmmakers came to Hollywood in the 20s and 30s and 40s and made their, started studios and made their films. But after that, it sort of became quite homogenized and the independent cinema movement, Bob Rafelson and all those guys, Dennis Hopper and the whole group of Nouvelle Vague American film was really American. Mm -hmm. Now it's much more diversified. So I think there's been some positive changes from a cultural point of view in terms of humanity. There's been a lot of change in terms of artistic openness to voices that come from without. Then there's the huge shift in cinema, which we'll talk about in a second. And then there is, unfortunately, the bad things. And so the bad things, are, it used to be so much fun. It was so much fun. And characters like Robert Evans and my mentor in Hollywood, Al Ruddy, produced The Godfather mm. and The Longest Yard, and who's my dear, dear friend and is 90 years old and still alive. I mean, he used to take oxygen from a mask while smoking a fucking cigar. <laughs> I mean, you know, the first meeting I had with Bob Evans, he had a pyramid of cocaine on his desk. So it it was pretty <laughs> wild. I didn't I didn't I'm not a drug user, but I never have been. But but it was pretty fun. Yeah. It was pretty fun. People didn't kind of of course post sixties after what had happened with the Sharon Tate murders, everything yeah. else, the town changed. And I think Quentin does an amazing job in that movie, Once Upon a Time in mm -hmm. Hollywood, because that's kind of what it was like. Yeah. And what's so brilliant about that film is you see the real performance of Leo and that girl is amazing in the movie as well. And obviously Brad is incredible in the movie. And it was kind of like that. That's what it was. Whereas today, you know, it's a different game. Yeah. People yeah. are fucking nervous about what they say and it's very hard to get big movies made unless they're, you know, marble or they're Remakes sort of, or... you know, it's very difficult. So yeah. th that's changed. And then the streamers come along in terms of how they deliver and the audience gets used to long form and six part and three part. And that kind of takes away from the whole experience of going to the cinema. So those things have changed. Yeah. Lot. Yeah. You've been very close to famous people and, and celebrity in general. You've had brushes with it yourself, as we say, but you've been kind of friends, mentors, clients with, I don't know, managed, been agent of all sorts yeah. of very famous mm -hmm. people. What do you think about fame and celebrity? What do you think about it as a force in this world? Is it good for people? Well, a photographer said to me the other day, so Gilles Ben-Simon actually said, you know, a, a, an image is something you can snap on your iPhone, right? Mm -hmm. A picture is something that has intention, meaning, and value. There's a descriptive element to it that is telling a story. Celebrity is not dissimilar to that. So you have celebrity whereby, you know, you kind of look a certain way and take your clothes off and you turn up to the right events and you 
do a sex tape and you become globally famous and you're a celebrity. Mm -hmm. Then there is a great artist whose work and the formation of his work and the journey of that work is either very quick, so sometimes people become stars very quickly, directors or filmmakers or artists, or it takes many, many decades to, for example, Lartigue was not celebrated, the photographer Lartigue mm. was not celebrated and recognized until he was 70. Mm -hmm. Fellini wasn't really recognized until, you know, he was in his 50s. So that work and indication of work and celebration of that work, that celebrity I understand and I can accept the other celebrity to me is a nonsense and mm -hmm. is destructive and that it's celebrated as it is on Instagram and OnlyFans and, and in magazines and periodicals who, you know, celebrate the kind of moron class who got famous by being vulgar is a, something that is abhorrently bad for our children and for society. Right. Whereas the other part of being well-known because you do things well is a different edged sword, but at least we understand why it exists. Yeah. In either of these two cases, I don't wish it on anyone. And if anybody's listening to this and they're on their way to being famous or they have become famous or listen, man, be careful what you dream for, because, you know, it is really challenging to be well known from your face. Uh, in today's world, it was always challenging. By the way, there are people who move around town, like Tom Cruise or, or you know, many other people who come into towns, like London or Paris or New York or Los Angeles, and who move around freely, and you never read about it, see it, and no big deal is made about it. And there are people who do everything to make sure the press knows what they're doing and they're always sort of flouting in the same story essentially yeah. either th their connection to somebody they've loved or they're loving or their their nudity or vulgarity or their wealth so i, I have no time or interest for that and okay. most of the great artists that i've known by the way who've been great tend to like to be out of the limelight unless they're mm. working one of the things you're you're best known for on this side of the pond is your pre-BAFTA party, which has been going for maybe 25 years. I think 30 years. 30 years. Year. I thought maybe 28 years. I mean, I have these two parties a year, pre-BAFTA and pre-Oscar. And the pre-BAFTA started when I was sent to London from William, with William Morris because there was nothing for the clients to do mm you know, either the night before or the night of the BAFTAs. And they were, the BAFTA event is a very big, you know, because by virtue of the size of the Academy, it's a big, has to be a big event to include the nominees and also the people around them. So it's not very intimate. So that's why that started. Mm -hmm. Little did I know it would become like such a thing every year that we have to kind of keep going, doing it. And I find it pretty intense. Um, you, Oscar, do you enjoy it? You, you, you're um, not really a... A crazy late night party person. I'm not a party person, funny enough, which is so funny that I'm well known for these two parties. But I enjoy some parts to it. I quite like how glamorous it is and seeing people dress up. I quite yeah. like that. It's quite fun. But on the night um, itself, it's not. But I find it quite stressful. So Los Angeles is slightly different because I'm very at home at the Beverly Hills Hotel where I've done it for quite a long time or Madea where I used to do it. So in Los Angeles, I started before BAFTA because Michael Chow gave me his restaurant when I was like 20. Mm -hmm. And you weren't allowed to give a party in Hollywood. The Academy didn't want anybody giving any pre-Oscar party on the Saturday night. Because on in those days, people, when they had a party, they could go away for three days. Yeah, You know, it was really pretty wild. And I did it anyway. And I never forgot getting a call from Bob Ramey at the time, who was running the Academy, who I knew a little bit. I was a young pipsqueak. But because of my dad and, you know, being British and different, I knew quite a lot of these people. And he said to me, you know, you know, Finchie, you're not allowed to give a party. And I heard you give me a party. And Michael Child told me you give me a party. And I said, well, I'm just going to have a few people, just 10. Anyway, I must have been maybe 21 years old, 22 years old. And so I'd been given the restaurant of Mr. Charles. And then the world descended on it. 
Because in those days, also what's very different is that everybody went to everybody's house. Mm. So if somebody was giving a party in somebody's house, you didn't really need to be invited in Southern California. You just turned up. And it was all sort of safe and cool and where's the next party? And yeah. it was very, very liberal and really fun. <laughs> and so I had like 300 people turn up to Mr. Chow's and there were like unbel- these huge fucking movie stars, Jack and Warren and you know, all, all these people showed up. And um, I think Carrie, I can't even remember. I mean, like really big people showed up at this party because either they wanted to see pretty girls or because they didn't have anything to do on the Saturday night. Yeah. So that's how it starts. But you don't, is this something you're going to keep doing, do you think? Swifty, Lazar kept going until he died. Yeah. And, um, yeah. It always surprises people that, doesn't it? What? That they think you would be this kind of Gatsby-esque. But I guess he didn't like his bodies either, actually. Gatsby. Well, I mean, that is something that, in fact, somebody just made, did you know that or did somebody tell you that? Well, so somebody just made a picture for me, which, which oh, really? is the Gatsby picture. Oh, no, I didn't know that. And, <laughs> And then circulated around okay. the party in Hollywood. So, so I I do tend to leave quite early, and uh, I really am a bookworm. So I leave pretty early. I don't drink so much. So, different things about these two parties I like differently. So London, I like it because I've got a lot of my London friends, and I feel very safe with Robin Burley, and I did with his dad, uh, Mark Burley at Annabelle's. And actually, Richard Caring used when he bought the clubs, um, and Annabelle's used to uh, let me keep on going mm. there. But then when Robin opened, uh, you know, obviously one of my dearest and oldest friends, I, you know, I had to do with Robin. So I feel safe there, and I feel mm. good, and it's ca- kind of fine. Hollywood's a little bit different. I feel very safe in Hollywood. Okay. I feel really, really safe. I mean, I've been in Hollywood since I was twenty or nineteen, and yeah. My dad was there, and my mum was there, and and I <laughs> I feel pretty safe in Hollywood, yeah. I must say. And then, of course, having been an agent, a lot of the big agents now who run the town or, or studio heads, you know, I've known them pretty much all my adult life. Yeah. So I feel pretty safe. Okay. And so even if no movie stuffs turn up and it's just us, I'm fine with that okay. too. <laughs> so there's a real feeling. And the, and the difference in the two parties is one is – very star heavy in London, I'd say. Yeah. And the one in Hollywood is very power heavy. Okay. Have there ever been any particularly hairy moments or diva-esque behaviour or um, faux pas, maybe? I would say it was uh, pretty strong about bad behaviour. Okay. I think people know that. So, right. um, yeah, it's always, there are lots of difficult things. Funny enough, I find bigger stars behave really, really well. Tom Cruise, like if he's going to come, he's coming. Mm-hmm. And he'll come in the back door and say hello to him and be absolutely charming. Leo, if he's going to come, he's going to be great. Um, ben Affleck has always, you know, I think the biggest stars are, are really well behaved yeah. and charming and kind of full on. Of course, we've had, you know, a few things that have, have gone crazy and, mm. and, you know, excuses on the night. Oh, I can't do because can't come because I'm lactating. You know, the fuck is that? Right? You know, then why did you tell us a week ago? So, you know, that sort of happens. Okay. <laughs> There's so many other things which I wanted to ask about. You obviously the chairman at Dean & DeLuca, a very famous New York deli. In yeah, I am. I, I, unfortunately, in my time there, the business went under in the US, but it's going to be brought back um, very soon. Internationally, it's continued to thrive. Yeah. Um, I'm very interested in the food restaurant, so I started Chuck's, the food re- brand here. Still the is- best branded restaurant in town i think it's yeah. so timeless and Thank handsome you. and beautiful i love it yeah so there's chucks which is was designed originally on my boat yeah on the interior of my boat and then it had a clothing line which i'm just developing a new clothing line now and well i'll also open a restaurant again i hope in the next couple of years yeah and you've obviously got Rabbit's Foot as well, as we mentioned briefly, which is a kind of yeah. a very old-fashioned, wonderfully old-fashioned magazine that covers film and culture and yeah. art. I guess old-fashioned in the sense there's a lot of writing in it, yeah. if that's what you mean. But um, And we don't want to do too much of that for your generation. But anyway, <laughs> um, so we're in our fourth issue now, yeah. which is coming out. We're at 1,400 points of sale and... It's growing, and we're just learn- I'm learning how to do it, and it's, yeah. it's film, art, culture, and photography, and stuff like that. And I wonder if there's anything 
Any itches you haven't scratched yet? What you've done so many different things. Where's the unfinished business for Charles? Well, Finch? you know, two years ago I went back into producing movies. So yeah. we have a movie company at Columbia, which is called Standalone. I co-produced Sofia Coppola's new movie, Priscilla, mm-hmm. which was a strange one because I don't really have a relationship with her. So it was more of a I like this project. I really like the Italian producer. I like Sofia. But we have a slate of movies that we're pushing towards getting made now. Yeah. So that's really important to me to continue producing movies. And I can see myself making another movie, actually. Really? Yeah. A a fiction? A fiction, yeah. Even if it's 10 minutes long. Okay. I yearn to do that again. And is that to kind of absolve what you feel is the failure of never Maybe. Will you act in it? No. I don't think so. Although I'm game to try anything again. Yeah. And um, it depends on the story. Yeah. You know, it wouldn't be too difficult to make a short movie and do it pretty well and then, you know, be proud of that. I mean, it's always difficult to make a film, but I can see having the resources to sort of do that carefully and spend Mm. time making that. So maybe that's a bit too safe. Take some risks. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. Do you have time for one more question quickly? So you've spoken about your kind of mentors, Al Ruddy, obviously a great mentor of yours, and I think there's probably many, many more. Smith, Al Ruddy, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, Gordon White. One of the things a couple of people who, who know you told me when I was kind of researching this is that you're also a mentor to lots of people informally, formally, through Finch and Partners, where we're sitting now, various people you've kind of helped or, or guided in various ways. What advice do you most often find yourself giving? What are, what are people looking for now, young people, 20 to 30? What do you it, think they're, they're missing? It's funny. I, I have a real passion for mentoring, a real passion mm-hmm. for it whether it be the people who I work with in my sportive activities, you know, climbing or sailing, or my captains are young and they, I think, graduate working with me. The people here at Finch and Partners and at William Morris, and I mean, many of whom have gone on to run big companies to start their own companies, many, many of them, as you probably know. So I really love that. I would say that, that I love young energy, But I think it's trying to help young people get to the point of what they really want to do quickly. Right. And I think a lot of time is wasted in taking the wrong jobs. Whereas if you can be really, really, really make a decision about what you really, really want to do. We had an interview with a guy this morning and I said, what do you really want to do? Yeah. You know, you're interviewing for this position, but what do you really want to do? What is it? And sometimes we'll interview people in the marketing company who will say, I want to be a filmmaker or I want to be a writer. And you're like, well, actually, you shouldn't be in this company, maybe in one of our other companies, or because this is just taking you mm. away from what you tr- – and you're going to get frustrated and you won't do good. So that's number one, trying to get to what you really want to do quickly – and understand what it is that you're really wanting to do. And having that knowledge, number one, fundamentally, a mentor can probably help you understand your natural skill sets. Number two is working hard, you know, learning a discipline of how to work hard. Mm -hmm. And I think the ones that make it are the ones who come in early and leave late. And all this view of like, well, I can work at home and I can... Yeah, maybe you can, and maybe that works for you, but it's going to be harder for you because ultimately, you know, you don't have anybody to push you or supervise you, and that's not for everyone. And what advice do you wish you were given when you were 18 or 21? I wish that had I had a father and after my third film that they had said, listen, they're exactly what you said sort of before. There are bad reviews. There are good reviews. You must keep going. Because mm-hmm. I probably would have kept making movies. Yeah. Like as a filmmaker. Now, I have no regret, but I think now when that does happen or did happen to clients of mine, I'd say, listen, you know, this is a piece of paper. Yeah. You need to learn some things that maybe were not well judged here. And the only other thing I would say is preparation. I think preparation is such a fundamentally important thing to do, whether you be climbing a mountain or sailing or making a movie, you know, real preparation and thoughtfulness is something you unfortunately don't learn until you're older. Amazing. Mm. Charles, thank you so much. We've taken up too much of your time, but it's been wonderful to chat to you. 
Merci, mon capitaine. <laughs> All right. Hope it's useful. Hope some of it is useful. Absolutely. Of course it will be. It's wonderful. All right. Good. Thank you, Thank Charles. you for that being fun. remotely interested. Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more.